0: Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Recently, political activist, public advocate, and presidential candidate Ralph Nader stopped by Fordham University's Rose Hill campus. During an almost two-hour lecture, Nader delicately chastised, strongly encouraged, and thoroughly inspired his audience to empower themselves as consumers and strengthen their role as corporate and government watchdogs. Ralph Nader on this week's Fordham Conversations. The subject
1: tonight is... uh losing control and regaining control in a consumer marketplace. Uh, This is a a lot broader subject than the title would indicate. You like uh, our generation uh, have been growing up corporate, that is we see the economy pretty much the way those tens of thousands of advertisements want us to see the economy. And those advertisements come from corporations. So when you see, for example, ads for Coca-Cola, or for hot dogs, or for toothpaste, you see the vendor's perspective. You don't see a countering's perspective. Have you ever seen an ad, for example, that takes a hot dog apart in terms of 30% fat, various percentages of fillers, coloring agents, debris, and the rest low-protein quality meat scraps? Imagine if an ad came on like that, you might have a different reaction when the company uh, trying to sell you the hot dog uh, put forth its uh, version of that deadly pink missile in the American cuisine. (laughs) And of course, the same was true years ago in the automobile area where there was never any advertisements that compared automobiles for safety, fuel efficiency, emission control. Uh, They were just General Motors, Chrysler, Ford, and they emphasized horsepower, speed, color, in, in interior decor, style, and so forth. Well, when I was your age, uh, there was a, a recurrent tragedy that you are experiencing less of. And that is, uh, I lost a lot of my high school and college classmates in traffic crashes. Uh, the, the rate was five times higher than you're experiencing. And uh, I began to uh, wonder why. And of course in those days, the anti-motorist perspective was that the motor vehicle was never involved, uh, that the highway was never involved, that it was not behind the wheel, it was always the driver. When any analysis of human fact- factors engineering would show that all three of these interact in various ways in various sequences. Like you may, uh, you may uh, lose control of your vehicle and it may smash into another vehicle but the the second stage that could prevent the injury, that is people from going through the windshield, is the car's responsibility. It's the seatbelt, it's the airbag, it's the collapsing steering column. Well, in those days we never discussed any of this, and I began looking into this, and I was pretty shocked by what I found. That, you know, on one side I was remembering all my friends who were killed in highways or seriously injured, and on the other side I'm seeing General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler's executives suppress their own engineers and scientists and deliberately keep life-saving devices off uh, their motor vehicles and the assembly lines. The seatbelt was invented many, many years ago, actually they used it in World War I planes to keep the pilots from falling off the pl- out of the planes when they went like this, in the dogfights. And a Padded Dash panel, that was ancient Roman chariots had that. Uh, They gave GM uh, 2,000 years of lead time. It wasn't wasn't enough. The airbag was invented back in the uh, late 40s and early uh, 50s. So as I saw this gap between uh, life-saving devices kept on the shelf and blood and guts uh, on the highway, I became very indignant. And later on, uh, I had some engineers tell me, you know, we had all this information, we never wrote it up. I said, let me tell you why you didn't write it up, because you didn't have any fire in your belly. It isn't enough to know something, you have to have fire in your belly. Rosa Parks refused to go to the rear of the bus, she had fire in her belly. Those workers had to sit down strikes in 1930s against Ford General Motors and Michigan to form the United Auto Workers Union. They put their entire family livelihood on the line, there was no unemployment compensation, no other real jobs, it was a depression. But they had a self-dignity and had fire in their belly. So it's very important that you remember that you have to have intellectual intelligence and emotional intelligence
0: While speaking at Fordham University, Ralph Nader went on to tell the audience that this intellectual and emotional intelligence is what gives people the metabolism to counteract the conventional ways of thinking. Nader emphasizes three important skills needed to participate in a civic arena instead of just a commercial one. They include demanding proper government services for tax dollars, demanding safe, accurate, and worthy consumer products and services, and participating in a functioning democracy as citizens. Fordham Conversations continues as Ralph Nader asks the audience a question that has a very telling answer. How many students
1: here have uh, never been at a shopping mall? How many have never been to McDonald's? How many have never been to Walmart? Are you from Finland? (laughs) Okay, so how many here have uh, have, uh, never been in, in a city council meeting? attended a city council meeting? Never. How many have never been in a court of law as a spectator? Okay, now you see the difference? Now you want things, you want to buy things, you go to a shopping center, you want to get fat in your arteries, you go to McDonald's, you want to participate in a downward pressure on wages in this country, uh, you go to uh, Walmart, but if you want to participate in the civic arena instead of just the commercial arena, A lot of you are not there. And multiply this millions of times, and you've got one of the reasons why we don't have very uh, well-functioning democracy, and why we have too much power in the hands of the few against the many. And history shows that when the few, large corporations and their political allies, have too much power, uh, they're not gonna make decisions for the benefit of the many. They're gonna make it for their own benefit. There are very few self-restraints to the commercial uh, impulse. It keeps pushing more, more profits, more profits, more profits, uh, until somebody stops it, And that somebody is usually one of several restraints that we've learned to establish in our country, although we haven't kept them uh, in tip-top function. One restraint is uh, the law. The law basically says you shall not cheat, you shall not steal, uh, etc. Or you, you shouldn't charge too much interest and in the lot. That's called regulation. The second is the fear of lawsuits. That is, if companies uh, get out of line and produce a defective drug or a defective car, they can be sued. A third is uh, a kind of internal restraint uh, from uh, institutional sh- shareholders or maybe the the values of the CEO. Uh, For example, the CEO of Allstate years ago was a big supporter of airbags before any other insurance companies and before the auto companies were. The fourth uh, approach is is strong labor organizations. Uh, Workers can basically say to the employers, you know, uh, we're not going to go down in these coal mines and die from coal miners pneumoconiosis uh, or uh, you're going to provide a fair Uh, standards by which we work. And the fifth is is, is consumer feedback. Obviously the more we know, the more we tend to avoid uh, something that isn't good for us or uh, reward something that is uh, good good for us. So you have all these restraints. Now these restraints are always combated by the, the corporate power structure. They have to try to weaken or repeal regulations. So that, the, the weakening of regulations. is one. The second is they try to make it difficult for you to go to court. Anybody here ever been in small claims court? They've been quite successful, the corporations, in making it harder for wrongfully injured people, whether they're injured by medical malpractice or injured by toxic chemicals or defective products uh, from going into court. It was never a cakewalk to begin with. Uh, over ninety percent of all such injuries, people don't even file a claim, never mind get into the courtroom. The labor unions have been weakened as well and they were a countervailing force. They've been weakened because of globalization. You know it's pretty hard to maintain a union if your company's going to ship the auto plants to Mexico or China. Uh, It's also pretty hard to start a union when your company can say if you start uh, organizing a union we're out of here we're going to uh, the Mechiladora era of Mexico. We're going to go where Uh, fascist and communist dictators can keep their workers in their place uh, making it impossible for them to get a decent wage and paying them 50 cents an hour. So you can see that the uh, expansion of corporate power is truly relentless uh, in the past 20-25 years. There was a time in the 60s and early 70s when we could get some pretty good uh, health and safety standards and we get some good legislation. Those are the years when the framework for environmental laws, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, setting up EPA, setting up OSHA for job safety uh, and health protection, uh, those are the times when they got through. And Lyndon Johnson signed them and Richard Nixon, would you believe, even signed them. He was still afraid of liberals. He was still afraid of the rumble from the streets out of the 60s. But then the corporations, as they often do, Uh, regrouped. They strengthened a number of lobbyists in Washington, they vastly expanded their political action committees, pumping money into the coffers of the uh, elected representatives, and they engaged in a massive uh, propaganda effort throughout the country. Uh, As a result, um, when people are not organized, they are very vulnerable to denial of information that they're entitled to have, And, and they also Uh, don't know what to do when they feel ripped off or grieved or or harmed. And so here we are in the United States of America, 2009. We won World War II, as I recall. After World War II, Western Europe was uh, devastated. Cities were destroyed, countryside destitute, 50% unemployment, starvation, and it wasn't long in the 1940s after World War II, with the help of the Marshall Plan, that the people of Western Europe began demanding through their multi-party system, they didn't have a two-party tyranny, multi-party system through their cooperatives and their stronger trade unions. They demanded for all the people in countries like the Netherlands, Italy, Germany, France, Sweden, Belgium, they demanded a full universal health insurance in Ghana. They demanded and paid maternity leave, paid family sick leave, paid daycare, they got it. They demanded decent public transit, tuition free education, they got it. They demanded four week paid vacation, minimum, for everybody, never mind if they belong to labor unions, and they got it. Poverty as we know it in this country does not exist in Western Europe. They have too many safety nets. They pay a little higher taxes, Look what they get for it. They just show a card, health care. 64 years later after World War II in the land of the free, home of the brave, we don't have any of these for all our people. So you can see there is a difference in expectation level between the American people and the people of Western Europe. They're just demanding more. And if you control expectation levels, you control the population. If our expectation levels of what our political system and our government should be delivering and should be performing is low, the politicians will oblige us, won't they? And our expectation levels are very low. I have a lot of young people in your age come up to me and they say, well, you know, um, we're just not turned on to politics. And they sort of laugh. And I say, well, you should study your history. If you don't turn on to politics, politics is going to turn on you.
0: Fordham Conversations will be right back with more from political activist Ralph Nader. When I fall in love,
1: it will be forever.
0: A Bronx couple married 57 years with absolutely no regrets. Anna and Seymour Greenberg on this morning, Cityscape. Hi, I'm George Borarki. Tune in at 7.30 for quite the love story. That's Cityscape this morning at 7.30 right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, your host, and we're listening to excerpts from Ralph Nader's Losing Control and Regaining Control in a Consumer Marketplace, a speech he recently gave at Fordham. If you're just joining us, Ralph Nader spent the first half of his talk addressing the rights of consumers to have and establish restraints for products and services offered by companies. He also shared a personal story on why he was inspired to push car manufacturers to install safety features, something documented in his 1965 book, Unsafe at Any Speed. Ahead, Nader discusses how his audience can become expert consumers, active citizens, and demanding taxpayers by gaining control in the marketplace.
1: So look at your elementary education and high school and college. Did we learn any consumer skills? Did we learn any taxpayer skills? Did we learn any civic skills? Some of us may have had civics. You know how civics is taught in most schools. It's a textbook that is so dry, it's like eating a ton of sawdust without butter. Because It doesn't want to be controversial. It doesn't want to use proper names like, here's the story of the Exxon Valdez or the Bhopal tragedy in India. And as a result, people, you know, they, whatever they learn in civics is in one ear out in the other. No wonder a few years ago there was a survey of high school students and more of them knew the names of the three stooges and the three branches of government. <laughs> so what's wrong with education that doesn't teach us about the economy through a consumer lens? Doesn't teach us about government through a civic engagement lens. Doesn't teach us about the political economy through a taxpayer lens. Is that an oversight? Or is it just respecting the principle that educational institutions are a function and a reflection of the way power is concentrated and distributed around the country? So I went went to to Harvard Law School and all the students there, they wanted to work with a few exceptions in corporate law firms. And, of course, the law school obliged. Those were where the lucrative jobs were. So we had the curriculum geared to corporate law. So there was no consumer law course, there was no poverty law course, there was a law on landlord-tenant, and we never got to the tenant. the I mean, Harvard Law School uh, graduates are going to represent tenants, they're going to represent landlords. That's where the money is. Uh, we, we, we had a course on criminal law and it didn't touch corporate crime. Even though corporate crime is pretty widespread, not as much as now where we're in a corporate crime wave. So we should ask ourselves, what does it mean to grow up corporate? It means to constrain our very imagination. It means that we are not offered the full panorama that can provoke a critical mind. And I want to illustrate just how we grow up corporate. How many of you have signed a fine print contract in your life? So it's everybody, version. You open a bank account, see the little card with this fine print, you sign, they give you a bank account. Credit card application, sure. Auto insurance policy, landlord lease, and so on. Well, a contract's supposed to be a meeting of the minds. The freedom of contracts is one of the pillars of our democracy. And yet, we've lost that freedom, because those fine print contracts are written, obviously, by the vendors, by the sellers. And those sellers like to write them to their advantage. So they have penalties and overcharges and gouging interest rates and mandatory arbitration to keep you from going to court in all kinds of ways that in effect keep you uh, from meeting their mind in a more equitable fashion. We put out a book years ago called An Action Manual for Lemon Owners. At, at the end of the book we had a simple pro-consumer contract in large print. So, we said to the readers, if you go buy a car, uh, slap the contract down, ask the dealer to sign your contract, and let us know what happened. The first letter we get back, person goes down, gets his GTO Pontiac, it's everything alright, slaps down the contract, the clerk looks up like this, rushes to the glass cage where the manager is, and the manager calls the police. The second one, the, the person was chased out of the dealer room with a guy saying, Get out of here, you dirty communist. This was back in the 60s. <laughs> so, and what were they doing? All they were trying to do is have a consensual contractual agreement that wasn't one-sided. So let me just run through the kind of new controls that now are over uh, consumers. Let's take credit first. If you complain a lot now, because you've been ripped off or you haven't gotten what you paid for. They can lower your credit score and damage your credit rating. And as a result, people are very inhibited from complaining. And they know what happens when the credit the credit score and, and your credit rating goes down. You pay more. And now they have it such, and we don't even know what the full criteria is, but we know, for example, that if you make uh, letters... Uh, phone calls complaining, that can affect your credit score. If you make an inquiry that they interpret as complaining, that can affect your credit score. Now, how can they get away with all this? Because they control the money. Now, as young people grow up and they they don't know anything other than credit card and a debit card, and it's all the fine print around them, something happens to your independence. And you begin to just get along by going along, you just basically passively surrender even if you think you've been ripped off and you'd like to do something about it you have to run through so many hoops on the phone, press one, press two and then you don't get the right person, you say it's not worth my time but you see the gap between knowledge and action you see it's not enough to know, you have to care you have to have fire in your belly, you have to have a sense of injustice you can't have a sense of justice without a sense of injustice. And that's why it's, it's not enough just to you know, sort of say, yeah, we know this is going on, but you can't do anything about it. The, the old, you can't fight City Hall, you can't fight Exxon attitude. That, that, that kind of withdrawal is a withdrawal that becomes a way of life. It becomes a way of life, it's a way of surrender. And when millions of people do it, the whole quality of the political economy uh, declines. So that now, even though we have huge GDP and we are called the richest nation in the world we have one out of every three workers full-time working Walmart wages seven and a half, eight, nine, ten, ten and a half dollars an hour before deductions we have about fifty million people without health insurance and millions more underinsured and we have a whole variety of deprivations that you will never hear a President of the United States give a speech about The way President Obama and President Bush gave speeches about Iraq and Afghanistan. Today as we speak there are two bills winding through Congress that deal with consumers. One is the health insurance alteration bills and the other is the consumer financial regulatory proposals to deal with the Wall Street issue and pensions and investors. Are those subjects which of course affect all Americans? These are trillion dollar effects. Millions of cases of injury and death and disease involved in the whole health care and health insurance matrix. Are they part of your small talk on campus? Are they part of uh, your courses? Are they part of your independent work? Ask yourself why.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV and Robin Shannon. As Ralph Nader winded down his address to a Fordham audience, he stressed the need for the liberation of the imagination in order for value systems to have a greater reaching grasp. In excerpts from his speech, Losing Control and Regaining Control in a Consumer Marketplace, Ralph Nader challenged audience members to contemplate what it means to bring their conscience to work and what it takes to be an ethical whistleblower. Up next on Fordham Conversations, Ralph Nader takes us through building a democracy and tells us what he thinks is the most powerful way to deal with the abuses of big business.
1: What we need to do uh, so badly is to ask ourselves, how do we build a strong democracy here at home? My father used to tell me, if we're going to spread democracy abroad, it's a pretty good idea to be one. And our democracy is weakening by the decade. There are so many indicators, not just voter withdrawals, not just inadequate number of candidate choice because of gerrymandering, not just because money is twisting politics into grotesque forms of inaction or greed, but it's because increasingly our economic institutions of any size have no more commitment to community or to nation as they are astride the world, other than to control us or ship our industries and jobs abroad to authoritarian regimes. There are a lot of ways to deal with big business and its abuses, regulation, judicial entry, stockholder accountability, labor unions, but my favorite way has become displacement. That's the most powerful way. Every time a community clinic opens up With prevention on its mind, it weakens the drug industry and the big hospital and health insurance companies. Every time a community energy source develops, whether from wind power or small-scale water power or biomass or solar, it weakens the power of Exxon or the coal companies or uranium companies. Every time Consumer Credit Union opens, It weakens or displaces the sales of big corporations. You're developing more self-reliance individually, more self-reliance as a community, and less dependent on distant systems of supply with dubious technologies. That keeps money locally, rewards small business, and develops a different impact at that level of economy. There are 535 members of Congress who put on their shoes every day like you and I do. Fifteen hundred corporations pretty much get their way with the majority of them. These corporations don't have a single vote. The word corporation doesn't exist in our Constitution. We're the ones who have the vote. Yet in no congressional district are there strong Congress watchdogs organized. If there were, if in every congressional district simply 2,000 people organized as a hobby, some people engaged in bird, bird watching clubs, bridge clubs, if 2,000 people out of 630,000 in each congressional district to form these Congress watchdogs, devote 200 hours a year each volunteer, raise or contribute $200, open up two offices with two full-time advocates, Congress would turn around like this on about 10 major issues, because there's nothing out there back home. The lobbies are surrounding them in Washington. That's a level of expectation that is not extreme. Because if someone knocked on your door tomorrow and said, Hi, I'm your new neighbor, I want to introduce myself, I'm spending 23% of your income, can send your children off to war, raise your taxes, and expose you to toxic waste, see you later, what would you do? Say what the hell are you doing? Interrupting me while I was updating my profile on Facebook? <laughs> or would you say, "Come back here. You mean something to me, so I better mean something to you." That's your member of Congress. Now, if your neighbor had that kind of power, would you spend it, would you spend a, a few hours a month watching that neighbor? Well, you don't. We don't all have to do that. Just a small number of us representing broader policy choices supported by a majority of the American people. And above all, you should have a civic skill course where you connect with the community, so the community is your field work, the way a physics and chemistry lab is for physics and chem students. It's actually very exciting and a civic skill course doesn't need any more money in school, doesn't need a new laboratory, Uh, A lot of professors can learn how to teach it or teach it themselves. And when you come out of Fordham, you'll come out much more self-confident. You'll have a higher estimate of your own significance, and you'll never just say, whatever will be, will be.
0: Ralph Nader concluded his speech at Fordham University by explaining the importance of civic skills and challenging his audience to connect with their community. The activist and politician also introduced his first work of fiction, a tongue-in-cheek novel called Only the Super Rich Can Save Us. It's out now from Seven Stories Press. Whether you agree with him or not, Ralph Nader has impacted not only consumer culture, but pop culture, demonstrated here in the 1970s TV sitcom All in the Family.
1: You and your heroes like that Ralph Nader, you're giving the whole country a pain in the butt. Uh, You ought to be grateful for Ralph Nader. Do you realize that before 1968, there were hardly any cars recalled for being defective? But in 1972, there were nearly 8 million cars recalled. And do you realize that in 1974, who
0: cares? (laughs) My thanks to producer Sarah Kugel, Fordham University's Campus Activity Board, and their American Ages Lecture Series. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Next week, Mary Wilson is your host. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon, leaving you with Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Gospel Choir. Where we feel the hell in the shopping list.